You don't have to be from Philadelphia to love the Twisted Philly podcast. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. Hi, I'm Dina Marie, the host of Twisted Philly. Join me every week for some of my favorite stories from the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. We'll talk about true crime, haunted history, legends and local lore, plus some of my most favorite places to visit all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You can follow me on social media, on Facebook at The Twisted Philly Podcast, and on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. And you can find my show on all major podcast apps. Plus, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get access to exclusive content twice a month that isn't available to other listeners. Join me every week in Twisted Philly. It's Fort Wayne's most notorious cold case. April 1st, 1988 is the last time anyone saw the eight-year-old girl alive. Three days later, April 4th, her body was found in a ditch near County Road 68. She was molested, suffocated. Her death ruled a homicide. A forensic exam of her underwear revealed DNA from an unknown male. The case baffling authorities. The mysterious killer inflicting more fear leaving rambling, misspelled messages, authorities say, like this carving on a barn door two years after the murder. I kill eight-year-old April. I will kill again. Then, in 2004, according to police, more notes left at the homes of other young girls, reading, Hi, honey. I've been watching you. You are my next victim. Now, residents say that case changed their childhoods. She was a very sweet little girl. She was, and, and she always liked to hug people. Women coming to the birthday parties and little summer cookouts. She was always there. And that's why it was hard for me that something happened to her. Any murder uh, hits home and any murder is hard, uh, but to have uh, such an innocent, uh, such, such a young person, uh, just uh, rips your heart out. There was, should have been no reason for him to grab her. No reason whatsoever. It, it might have been someone else if she wasn't there. This guy is a monster. He's a coward. It's the unthinkable crime that haunted Fort Wayne, Indiana for three decades. A big break in a decades-old cold case. Until a clue hidden in a genetic code landed a suspected child murderer behind bars. The abduction and death of eight-year-old April Tinsley has haunted this community for over 30 years. I can assure you that anyone who worked on this case has been haunted by it. I was part of this investigation when it started, and there has not been a day, a month, or a year that has gone by without someone working on this case. There's got to be a bright spot. It's going to come someday. And then there's moments you have like, this is never going to be solved. 30 years. 30 years this family has waited for answers. And on Sunday, we were able to give them some of those answers. Today is a big win for law enforcement, and this investigation illustrates the dogged determination of the investigators who never wavered, never gave up, and kept moving forward for the last 30 years. It's the news family and friends have been waiting to hear. I, I, I just can't believe it. It's, you know, my first reaction was finally. Uh... I'm really happy that this day arrived. I never was necessarily sure we would ever see the day or, or they would be able to find who did this. So it's a terrible thing that it happened, but... I'm very happy there'll be peace for the family. 
and and for everyone who knew April. It's just such a feeling of relief and hope that maybe this uh, this nightmare is going to be over uh, for the family, for the community. Knowing the fact that this person just lives right down the street from my house, and I let my daughter play right here in my yard or across the street, very shocked. But at the same time, relieved that justice will finally be served for the family, and I pray every day for them. When police called 59-year-old John D. Miller in for questioning, they asked if he knew why they wanted to talk with them. According to a probable cause affidavit, he replied, April Tinsley. And they say he confessed to everything, the abduction, the rape, and the murder. As the suspect in the 1988 cold case killing of eight-year-old April Tinsley appeared before a judge, the child's mother describes the moment she heard about the arrest she's waited decades to see. They said they, they got him. And pretty much that all I needed to hear is that they got him. After collecting a DNA sample from John Miller's trash, police say they had their match. Janet Tinsley was in court with her supporters to see the defendant with her own eyes. She wants Miller to explain himself, but she hesitated when asked about his potential punishment if convicted. I'm not sure, you know, what he should get, but I'm sure he'll get what he deserves. He could face up to 100 years in prison if convicted and is being held without bond. John Miller's brother says he too was interrogated by police. As far as I'm concerned, when I when they told me that he confessed to this crime, my brother died. He should get the death penalty. If he gets the death penalty, they should let her be the one to pull the switch, I believe. He's got to meet his justice when he goes. All right, this is Justin with Mysterious Circumstances, and I have a co-host for this episode. This is a very special and very odd episode for me to do because it is a solved case. Me and my co-host had actually arranged to do this episode on the 30th anniversary of her uh, going missing, actually, and uh, we're doing the April Tinsley case, and um, usually I'd don't do solved cases and I actually have turned down this case for over a year because it's a local case. I don't do local cases. And after the last few kid cases that I have done involving children, I actually um, was kind of veering away from ever doing those again too, because I'm not, not a big fan of um, not a big fan of those. I mean, their voices do need to be heard there are plenty plenty of podcasts out there that'll cover it those just those kinds of cases just hit too close to home to me because I'm a parent and my co-host is too but Jesse was very very adamant about covering this case so I was like all right I'll freaking do it and then what was it about 3 months little over 3 months the case actually got cracked and solved and I actually uh, right after that said that I would not cover it now that it was solved. And all the uh, the listeners in my Facebook group and on the Facebook page and personal messages and Instagram 
everybody's like, dude, you still have to cover this case. You are local. Give us the inside info because me and Jesse are both local. So we have the advantage of the local news reports that other people don't have. I see people posting shit on Twitter all motherfucking day from like world news. And I I was very adamant on Twitter about people following local news networks for, for breaking news, but you know, nobody fucking listens to me, so it's whatever. But so I guess with that, <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah. So um, with that being said, I suppose we'll move on to Jesse. Um, Jesse, welcome. Yes. Are thank you, you. Are you nervous or anything? Uh, no, because I pulled a rimmel and I have a beer open. Damn right. So. <laughs> Damn yeah, right. it's it's a bottle though, so you don't get to hear that awesome, you know, click. Well, yeah, um, I'm drink, I'm drinking out of a mason jar right now, so we're good. Keep it classy, Rimmel. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a classy motherfucker. Well, <laughs> that's why we love you. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm Jesse. I'm actually from Fort Wayne as well, and I have followed this case ever since I was a kid. She went missing when I was six, and my sister was eight, and we actually have some really strange loose ties to this case. But yeah, I'm from Indiana, probably 15 minutes away from Justin. And um, I think we both just have a passion for this because we knew this case as kids. And now, since we are both parents, I mean, we've talked about it, how disturbing this is. And um, my four-year-old is actually right behind me. So it, it hits home, like you said, and kid cases are just terrible. But I have a a, a real soft spot. April and um, I feel like I've known her through all of this research following on you know like I said the local news we get the advantage of seeing a lot of the local stuff going on you know down at um, April's garden and stuff like that recently and I'm not gonna lie like when I was putting audio clips together and um, stuff like that um, you know not gonna lie I got I got emotional more than once because yeah just the outpouring from the community before and after this case has been solved. Um, yeah. Listening to Janet Tinsley, April's mother speak, um, seeing all the events that have gone on down around April's garden recently. It's uplifting because like, I'm not used to covering cases with endings, let alone, you know, happy ones at the end of the day. Um, so it and let would, alone one that is so local and that, that really is, is on your heart. Yeah. And when we start getting into the accused, because what we're going to do, because I do have a lot of listeners out of the country who specifically told me, please still cover this case because we're not as familiar with it as Americans, let alone people from Fort Wayne. And technically I grew up in a little town outside of Fort Wayne called Kinderville. And Believe it or not, the accused, John Miller, worked at the Walmart in Kinderville for about a decade um, up yeah. until about the time he got arrested. Well, and um, I'm from very near Spencerville where her body was found. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and, and the accused was living in Grable, which is a yeah. – Grable is a small, tight-knit country community outside mm-hmm. of Fort Wayne. Beautiful town, very small town. and Absolutely. The personal you feel like you know everybody really well. Exactly. exactly. The personal connections with the case, like, you know, John D. Miller, the accused, 
Um, you know, he did work at Walmart. He worked third shift. And I mean, we'll get into the specifics Perfect more of that later. A monster but, like him. <laughs> yeah. But the sad thing is whether he worked third shift or not, that literally is the, you know, Walmart that my kids go to are yeah. they're there once a week. And whether yeah. he worked third or not, I don't give a fuck. That's a very unsettling feeling. Oh, and, sure. I mean, I have a buddy at work. Um, whose daughter played softball at the softball diamonds right behind his fucking trailer yeah. where he lived. And yeah. he um, straight up told me, he's like, dude, uh, that trailer's right there. Like the guy used to wander over and watch the kids softball games up until yeah. he was fucking arrested. Yeah. A uh, friend of mine, um, her parents own the summer ice cream shop in Graybill. And she said she's waited on him hundreds of times through the years. So it's a, it's a real yeah. close connection, I think for all of us. Yeah, and a little bit later, um, we do have a, a special interview um, that you had actually lined up for me because after the news broke, and me and you were in the you know in the midst of researching it, I was doing it on and off, and you were adamant on it because um, I had other other research going on. Um, sure. I mean, it was just super super crazy, and it, it's I don't know. It's just really hard to explain. I ha I have a friend who actually. Uh, messaged me and she's like, you know, I called FWPD because she she was almost abducted in the late 80s in Fort Wayne in that area. But her case, she had the FWPD pull her file because when she saw his picture, she said she got physically sick because oh. that was the guy that tried to abduct her and she kept asking me, she's like, what did the truck look like? What did the truck? And I was like, it was, a, you know, and she's like, was it two tone? And I'm like, it was a beat up truck, you know, a blue truck. So yeah, I'm, I'm assuming it was, you know, apparently there are some other people who have come forward with this information also well, like having their, their old cases being pulled of attempted abductions in that yeah. area in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, and that's just, you know, a little bit of the of the local of the local aspect of what's going on right sure. now with this case. Some of the research that I came up with just regarding what we talked about earlier, the communicative serial killer or killers, they say it's much more likely that the kind of person who communicates like he did, and we'll get into that, um, they are more likely to be serial killers than one time. So mm -hmm. I'm really interested to see kind of how this plays out over the coming months. Oh, I'm very, very eager to say, and I will say this right now, for those of you who are trying very, very hard to make a connection with John Miller to the Delphi murders, yeah. don't, okay, don't do it, because people are grasping for straws right now. And people want answers. I, they do want answers, and that's one case, personally, that I would like to see solved, because I was actually there about a week after... The girls were found. Uh, I was a part of a small television series at the time. They were down there shooting, and I walked the trussle that the girls walked mm -hmm. across. And by the speed that he was walking across the trussle, I can personally assure you that it was not John Miller. There's, no, he there's, has a pronounced limp. He has a very pronounced limp and the person that trussle, let me tell you something. If, if you're not familiar with the trussle and know exactly where to step, um, it will put the fear of God into you because yeah. you are a hundred feet over a, a huge ravine and 
it's it's very unnerving like i was would not touch me on there death <laughs> that. yeah and i was actually nobody else would walk across the trussle to get shots of um the other side like the cameramen are like no we're not walking across that so i was literally the only person that would and i'm like i'll give me the damn camera i'll go across there i'm not gonna lie it was it was scary and sure. john uh, john miller i don't think is capable of moving across that trussle at that speed um the guy in the video did not have a limp i mean he was very uh he seemed not so much more fit but more physically active and that just is not john miller no and we have to remember that this case in particular is 30 years old this guy was 29 when it happened you know, a lot happens to your body in 30 years. And I don't yeah. think he has that physical capability. I don't yeah. at 36. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm 37 and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm almost dead inside and out. So, <laughs> but um, on a side note, before we do get started, we got to say that this is some graphic content that does, yeah. you know, you're going to hear some things, you know, not suitable for children. If you have a problem with that kind, this kind of, um, you know, murders of a sexual nature, things like that. Um, you know, this might not be the episode for you. So um, yeah. would you like to go ahead and, and get the ball rolling for us? Sure. So um, this this whole story starts April 1st of 1988. April Marie Tinsley, uh, she lived in downtown Fort Wayne, was um, playing with her friends. She was told that it was going to rain. And so she went back to her friend's house to pick up her umbrella. In that amount of time, she was picked up. Um, The only real lead that the police had to go on was that it was a male, white, mid-30s, in a beat-up blue pickup truck. Yes. Um, And And her walk from her one friend's house to the other one to get that umbrella was only a little over a block away, Yeah. Which yeah. is a scary thought for any parent because it makes you never want to let them go outside. Um, yeah, and when when we get to the interview with um with the guest that we do have, he is from that area of town. Um, basically, you know, to give a little context at this point in time, and you know, up until actually up until the April Tinsley abduction and murder. Uh, this was this was a nice area of town. It still is, but and he will straight up tell you he's like this changed the city. Like this scared the hell Absolutely. out of everybody that lived there. But it was a very very tight knit community, very small, very very community oriented. Everybody knew everybody, neighbors. They were all friends. But this um, was before the time of real helicopter parenting, when you could let your kids walk a block without being afraid of something like this. This really shifted the mindset of people in this area and I'm sure worldwide. Oh, for sure. And and I mean, back then, you know, you're, you're my age, like, you know, our parents would be like, Hey, if your ass is not home by the time the the street lights come on, you know, you're going to catch a whooping. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't mean when, when it's dark out, when they come on, be home. And that's what it was. April and her mom had like a deal where no matter where she went, you know, she was going to this friend's house or this friend's house, she would call um, her mother, Janet. And at this point she did not by Monday, the following Monday on April 4th, there were 50 people 
uh, involved in a search, and these were just civilians and um, twenty-five. Well, it, yeah, twenty-five cops. Yeah, they ended so up joining a huge up. search. Yeah, and the only, like you said, the only description they really had was, uh, you know, a white male in his thirties driving a blue beat up truck, and that that was given by a neighborhood girl who had seen seen her forcibly getting put into this truck. I was just going to say something interesting about this. I mentioned that we had personal ties to this case. My father, 30 years ago, would have been a few years older than John Miller. And I remember distinctly getting pulled over and my dad's beat up blue pickup truck being searched um, to find clues. They were searching everything. Any truck that matched that description was searched. And I can vouch for that. And that was that was the one thing that the cops couldn't understand. I mean, you know, before her body was even found, which, you know, we'll get to here in a second because her body was found on April 4th. But in that area of town, there's so many one way streets and everybody was like, how can this guy get away? There's so many one way streets around this area. Literally, everybody knows everybody. Well, this was before cell phones, and this girl, I don't know when she mentioned that she saw this, but I don't think she spoke up right away. She didn't speak up until like a week later. It wasn't like, you know, right as it happened, unfortunately. Right. But, um, you know, but still to the fact, uh, we we did have the one description from a clerk who worked at the Safeway gas station. Um, who his name was uh, Thomas Benedek. He more than likely, we don't know a hundred percent for sure, but he more than likely was the last person to see April Tinsley alive with the abductor. And this was after she was abducted, you know, not to spoil the surprise, but that's actually who I had an interview with. We had a good half hour long talk and it was, I think about six hours after the news broke about, about April Tinsley. It was a very eye-opening and very, very good interview, but, you know, we'll get yeah. to that a little bit later in the episode. Um, do you want to get to what happened at 3.30 p.m. on on April 4th? Yeah, yeah. So at 3.30 p.m., um, someone was jogging in, down the country roads. And just to paint a picture of where this is, this is in the country. You're surrounded by fields. You're in the middle of nowhere. So this person was jogging and it's April 4th, it's cold, it's wet, it's, it's rainy. This jogger found uh, little April's body at the bottom of a ditch. It was definitely a dump site. Uh, that was obvious kind of from the beginning. And so she, she was found with one shoe on, and that really comes into play later. They found that she had been raped and suffocated uh, at a different spot. And I think the really disturbing part is that it was later released that after she died, he had really desecrated the corpse. He he violated her after she was dead as well. This was right around County Road uh, 68, and I can't speak for you, but I'm I'm familiar because mm-hmm. the body was found in a neighboring county, which was DeKalb County. Uh, yeah, my right family outside. has hunting ground right there. I know there exactly where it go. is. Yeah, my my family lives right you know, in South DeKalb County, right by the Allen County line. There was a sex toy found within 20 feet of the body as well. Now, this wasn't an ordinary one. It was a wooden crank, which is, you know, more information than I wanted to know. Barbaric. It's, 
yeah, it's pretty messed up. On April 5th, uh, the very next day, a motorist does come forward and says that he saw a blue truck that was parked early Sunday, which was two days before, right in the middle of County Road 68. And like you had mentioned, you know, police didn't initially release the missing shoe information until later on. And like I said, that does, like you said, that does come into play a little bit later yeah. on. So um, do you want to take us uh, down the timeline a little bit further or anything, or do you want to elaborate a little bit more on what's going on at this point? Well, at this point, um, people had started to um, raise money in order to pay for her funeral um, and to help out the Tinsley family. The Tinsley's have just, it seems like they've just had such a tragic life. Um, April was actually a twin and her brother died right before she was born. So she obviously survived. And um, then they had a two-year-old son after that. So this family is just really thrown into upheaval. So April 5th is really when everybody, the manhunt starts. They, mm. they know what happened. They know how barbaric it is. The manhunt really starts. This is probably around the time that my dad was pulled over because this is where they're pulling over every light blue pickup truck. Just a a few days later, April 7th, they released a composite sketch of the man that the witness saw force her into his pickup truck. And uh, it was a pretty general description. It was a male in his thirties weighing 150 pounds. And I don't know about you, but that describes a lot of guys I know. Yeah. Um, It's about 90% of Fort Wayne. Yes. After that, she's buried uh, April 8th of uh, 1988. 150 people showed up and um, she was put to rest. I mean, this is like the start of and I and I I hate to keep harping on this, but, you know, people from outside of the city don't realize that there wasn't really anything like this before this. No. And I mean, I can't I can't say it enough like this changed the city. Yes. Immediately overnight in the audio clips, you know, you can hear people describe how it did affect the city. I mean, parents were scared to let their kids outside. Kids weren't allowed to ride their fucking bikes down the street. And what was once a nice, quiet community of friends and neighbors, everybody was looking at everybody. Everybody's paranoid Everybody's about suspicious. the guy next door, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like how within one block she literally vanished. And you have one mm-hmm. eyewitness account who didn't initially come forward. But I mean, she did within a few, you know, a few days to a week. But at the same time, you know, and then you have Thomas Benedict's description. Right. And when you hear him tell his story, it honestly gave me chills listening to yeah. him talk because you can he, feel the regret so much regret because sadness. he this was after she was reported missing like initially reported missing like the same day yeah. but they hadn't released a description all he heard was that there was a girl missing in the area no nobody had given a description i i genuinely i i felt for him But, yeah, I mean, moving down the timeline a little bit, on October 5th, 1988, um, a bunch of suspects are DNA tested because there was DNA found in April Tinsley's um, underwear, among other items that were there. No suspect 
was a match. And then that kind of moves us. I mean, this case was literally investigated up until the day that it was solved. The initial investigators of the Fort Wayne Police Department kept April's picture on their desks for, for 30, 30 years. For 30 years as yeah. a sign to never give up hope and never quit. And um, Sergeant Camp, who was the initial lead investigator in this case, um, carried around a picture of April in his wallet yeah. every single day. Yeah. Just Nobody forgets uh, this kind of thing. Nobody forgets it because there was nothing like it. And I will say this, though, on, on May 21st, 1990 is when shit starts getting real. Do you want to where you can tell that he's a sick motherfucker? That's fucking exactly right. And I I told Jesse this at the beginning. I'm going to tell all my listeners right now, for those of you who do not like my language, I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) Suck it up, buttercups. There's a 110% chance that Justin will go on a rant at some point in time (laughs) in this episode. So moving forward to about summer of 1990, um, this is when shit starts getting real. Yeah, this is where you can tell that this is a really sick fuck. <laughs> Obviously, if you if you can abduct, rape, and murder, and then desecrate the corpse of a child, there's clearly something wrong. But this is where it really starts to get sick and twisted. So summer of 1990, you have to remember that this is a farm community. So summer of 1990 is when a message starts to appear on a local barn. And, the, you know, it's a white old barn. I've seen plenty of pictures of it. It gets darkened over the course of a few days. So this guy came back to make sure that his message was seen. And so what he basically says is, in in terrible, you can kind of get some insight as to the mental state of this guy, because he says, I kill April Marie Tisley. So he misspelled her name. I kill again. So this guy in 1990 in the summer, he starts taunting the police. He starts taunting people and he does it over the course of a few days. What I read was that he had started it in pencil mm-hmm. and then he went back over it in black marker. And then I think after that, he went, came and went over it again in paint. So this mm-hmm. guy really wanted to get his message across. And so in the summer of 1990, people are starting to realize that this dude is local. He's still in town. And um, this is right before a similar murder occurred. On June 14th, 1990, Sarah Jean Boker is another local case. She was found. It was Coldwater Road right in Fort Wayne, which Coldwater is a very busy area in Fort Wayne, for those of you who are not local. But this was another case that had similar M.O. to April Tinsley's case. So... This being right around the time frame of the message on the barn door, you know, the cops are like, holy shit, man, this guy, this guy is going to just keep doing this until we find him. On August 7th, 1991, they they did, they had the FBI profile both killers and they did determine that they were different people, Uh, whether or not. You know, that is true. We don't know because, you know, John John Miller's DNA is currently being tested against several other cases at the moment yeah. as well uh, to see if they are matches, too. But, I know um, that we'll get yeah. into this, but um, the, the DNA plays a huge role in this. And the way that they came across it was really interesting, and it's very new technology. Going by that, you know, usually this is about the time where I start doing the speculation 
and, you know, maybe where the killer was from and, and, you know, what he was, what kind of person he was like. But like I said, this is an unsolved case. So I'm treading in a little bit different territory right now. So I'm not really sure how to act with my timeline to be. Well, if you don't mind, I think we should get into 2004 because if you thought the barn writing was bad, it gets worse. Yes, please. And you actually have done the extensive research on this. So I'm going to go ahead and let you take it away. Yeah. So if you thought this dude was sick before, it gets worse. So we're talking 1990 and then nothing that at least I'm aware of until 2004. So in 2004 was when some real sick shit started to happen. And um, a suspect started to put uh, notes on little girls' bicycles. The average age was seven. I think between the ages of five and seven, he did this multiple times. He would put a note in a plastic baggie along with a used condom. And the note would say something to the effect of, I am the one who killed April Marie Tinsley. If this isn't put into the media by tomorrow, you're my next victim. Not only was he taunting authorities, but he's scaring the shit out of little girls and their families by saying, I've been watching you. I've been watching you. And he just chucked his DNA onto a used condom and stuck it on bicycles. So not only is this guy genuinely twisted, but, you know, he's stupid as hell, too, because there's his DNA. He did one of them in a in a nail in a mailbox. Yeah. So he's he at two. I don't know what happened in his there life four, but in 2004. Yeah, because there were four total. And I'm not exactly sure what happened in 2004 either. But, yeah, there no. were four total. And I believe three of them were the bicycles. And then one yeah. of them was in the mailbox. Yeah. Yep. You're right. So I was doing a little digging into what kind of a killer communicates this way. And you know, intelligently enough, it's called communicative killers. The thing about this, and I, I touched on it before, is that people who have killed somebody and they communicate in this way um, are typically serial killers. So I feel like we're going to see some more come out of this. But some of the famous serial killers that do this are the Zodiac Killer, the Stick Killer, the Unabomber. So we're not talking about just your average sick fuck. I mean, this dude... I think has a lot of skeletons in his closet. So 2004 is really kind of where we see a turning point in his need to be back in, in the spotlight, which is kind Mm -hmm. of um, surprising given what this guy looks like and the way people describe him. Yeah. I remember when all that, you know, happened around 2004 and it was, Mm -hmm. it just brought up a lot of things again and, just I was not living in the area in 2004, so when I found that, I was shocked. Yeah, I was um, I was actually living in Auburn at the time, which is DeKalb County, and believe it or not, I was living in Waterloo, uh, which, ironically enough, is where John Miller grew up. That's where he's from. He went to school at uh, in DeKalb County. It was just one of those. It was it was really weird. It's too close I, for comfort. It's very. It's way too close for comfort. Don't get me wrong. This is before I had kids, but I still had family who was young, nieces and nep, you know, nephews, sure. and just it was seriously, seriously twisted shit. 2014, uh, there were some condoms found with DNA in it. The extent what is it of with that, this guy in condoms? I don't know. I don't fucking get it. 
the sad thing is, is like usually, um, you know, the MO of serial rapists who are smarter than the average bear use condoms to not leave DNA. Um, This guy is using condoms that he's just putting everywhere and they're used, you know, moving forward. You know, it's actually how he ended up getting tagged and, and getting the DNA matched. You know, that's when they start realizing that they've they've narrowed the field down from, right. you know, 100 possible suspects to, you know, maybe a handful. And right. the case starts going cold for a little bit. Um, now, in April 2015, there is something cool that happens. And I hate saying the word cool, but um, a guy named Jim Oberfeld, he was the leader of the local uh, neighborhood association right around uh, Hoagland and Masterson Avenues, which she was actually abducted from East Hoagland Avenue. He gives the okay to create a a memorial for April on the corner of uh, Hoagland and Masterson Avenues, and they do name it April's Garden as a remembrance, as a tribute. And later on in 2018, um, just this year, they did narrow the search down to two surviving brothers, which would have been John D. Miller and his brother. I do not know the name of his brother, nor do I know what he even looks like. I do know that he wants anyone to know his name. Yeah, he's actually very adamant about not having his picture out there. Um, He was the first one interrogated. He was interrogated for about an hour and a half, he said, Uh, because like I said, um, being the local news, we've been able to see a lot of interviews with him, in which case in the interviews, they won't even show his face. They just show his feet. You know, they had interrogated him for, you know, roughly about an hour and a half about, about the entire case and all that stuff. On July 6th, after the interrogation of... John Miller's brother. Police search John Miller's trash and find three used condoms. Now, these were immediately taken to Indianapolis for DNA testing, and on July 9th, the DNA confirmed a match 100% to the person who raped and murdered April Tinsley. Now, almost immediately, the cops go to John Miller's house And when they are out there, when they arrive, he was outside of the house and the cops go to, you know, pull him in for questioning, you know, possibly arrest him. And the cops say, quote, do you know why we're here? End quote. In which Miller replied two words. April Tinsley. April Tinsley. Mm -hmm. And after he was arrested, you know, taken in for questioning, he admitted everything. He totally, fully confessed to everything, and he described in detail the abduction, the rape, and the murder. And I will say this, the police affidavits are on record out there. You know, my listeners know I'm very adamant about details, and I'm not very squeamish about telling them to you. But because of the sensitivity of this and the fact that it's ongoing and I am local and you are local, I'm not going to go into the details of what actually happened. You guys can look that up for yourself. So yeah, we'll just say that it's it's more disturbing than I even had imagined. It's extremely I've I've read it and I there's just no words. Um the dude was a fucking monster. 
as an aside about that, the fact that he is a complete monster, as you and I were talking the other night about this case, I was just about asleep and this dude's face flashed in my head. I'm 36. I'm an adult. And this dude scared me like a child. He, he's terrifying. Yeah, he absolutely is. And the, the weirdest part about John Miller, he had no criminal record whatsoever with the exception of like three moving violations. That's fucking it in the last 30 years, like no criminal Mm -hmm. record. Um, There were over 800 tips that came in over the course of the years. And what it amounted to was three used condoms in his trash uh, that confirmed the DNA. And there is a big question right now regarding cases like this about whether or not that's an invasion of privacy. And I, I learned something actually about an hour ago when I was just reviewing some stuff. This was brought to the attention of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court specifically ruled typically, not all the time, but typically in cases like this, when a person discards belongings mm-hmm. as trash, it is pretty much fair game. So, yeah, I think that's been the rule for quite a while. Once it hits the street, it's public property basically exactly and that's that's exactly that's exactly what they said and you know people are like i don't feel comfortable with this i don't know why cops are allowed to do this and like i said like for a while now the supreme court ruled that once you discard something and it's out on the street out of your house it is not a possession anymore it's not an invasion of privacy it's you know it's made to the public basically It reminds me of a movie called The Burbs, where they're searching for a dead body. And uh, that's what they say. This is back in like 88 as well. So, I mean, this was this was the case even back then. Stupid reference aside, it's it's been the case. So um, I, I have a couple friends in the Fort Wayne Police Department and I reached out to one of them. And the way that they have been approaching this case has been really interesting. Even up until the arrest was made, obviously I wasn't made aware of all of the updates. Well, the um, sad thing was, is we were more than likely going to get an interview with, with a member of the FWPD. Yeah. And then as soon as this case broke, they're, <laughs> they're not allowed to talk about it anymore. So Yeah, we went from a 30-year-old cold case to <laughs> shut up, don't speak. That's my fault because I get behind on episodes a lot and stuff like that. And, you know, we really miss the opportunity. But at the same time, I'm more comfortable presenting the case after it's solved than than doing it as a cold case. Well, you, you and I talked about this in the very beginning when we decided to do this case. It has been so frustrating to watch and grow up through the lens of this case because there's just so so much going on with it. And to know that the Fort Wayne Police Department was really on top of it for all these years, and they cared enough to keep a photo in their wallet, really speaks volumes to how this affected our community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the DNA, so one of my friends, um, like I said, who's on the police department, actually was involved with using the DNA that this dipshit provided through the used condoms to update his facial features. So there's technology out there now where they use the DNA that they have on file that doesn't match a person and they use the markers to build a profile on the individual. 
and the picture was pretty close. It wasn't exact, but I think it's, it's pretty stinking close. Even a couple months ago, there was a team from this DNA laboratory that came and did kind of a sweep of, of potential suspects. They came back a couple months later, having narrowed it down. The genealogy expert, her name is Cece Moore, has been helping with a lot of cold cases and also helping just with um, people finding out who their families actually are. And so a lot of this is coming about from people taking these 23andMe type tests. Mm-hmm. And they're building this database. So whether you give your DNA sample or not, if you've done something, I feel like in the next few years, you're going to be fucked, <laughs> you know, with no lube, which is the way this guy should be. But I'm sure he will. So this DNA is just a total game changer. And it wasn't just somebody giving a tip. This was research done by somebody across the country who narrowed it down to two brothers, which is mm-hmm. just amazing to me. It really is. And, Um, I'm going to go ahead and play the interview. For those of you listeners who know, I am a local of Fort Wayne, Indiana. We recently had some huge breaking news in a 30-year-old cold case. With me on the phone is a man named Thomas who has a very personal connection to this case. And he has been so gracious and nice enough to grant me an interview with him to tell his story about the events and you know, talk about the community and and how all this, you know, affected the the community and um, how it affected him and how today's news that basically, again, affected you, which is um, like we were just talking. This is this is an amazing day for anybody who has been following this case for for a substantial amount of time. So, Thomas, um, I'm going to give it away to you and let you introduce yourself and we can kind of go from there. Okay, well, my name is Thomas Benedict, and I grew up in that neighborhood back during the 80s. Well, actually, from from birth through the 80s. And, uh, you know, this is an absolutely wonderful day for the family. I mean, I just have to say that this is absolutely wonderful news. I definitely agree. I definitely agree, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the area that, of Fort Wayne that you grew up in and maybe um, how things were in that area, you know, just the aspects of the community, I suppose. And then I guess we can kind of go into um, how you actually have this personal connection to the case. Okay. Well, um, again, I mean, I grew up in that area from birth through the 80s. And I mean, Fort Wayne has always been a very close-knit community. It always was. I mean, it was, you know, at the time, it was the second largest city in the state. And even with, you know, the 120-plus thousand people that we had in town, it still had that hometown feel to it. I mean, I've gone back a couple of times, but I mean, it still has that feel to it. It's a wonderful city to be in. I'm down in Texas now, but I mean, I've gone back a couple of times through weddings and things like that. Anyway, the point is, is that, I mean, Fort Wayne was always a wonderful town to be in. And it wasn't until this particular event happened that, you know, once this did happen, it just kind of changed gears and there just wasn't that feel to it anymore. Everybody was really closed in. They didn't want to go and be around the neighborhood anymore because, I mean, oh, my God, it was just a horrible time for everybody. I mean, I, I grew up down there 
in that neighborhood and actually a little bit farther down and, you know, graduated from Southside High School. And uh, the area was just always a, a wonderful area to be in. That's very true. I mean, even today, I, th- I still think the the city is under uh, 250,000. I believe it's still under that number. And I grew up outside of Fort Wayne. And recently, I've lived in and out of Fort Wayne uh, multiple times. But just like you had said, it's it's a big city, but it's still very tight knit, very community oriented, which is one of the aspects. Almost certainly. Yeah, and it brings a lot of people here because of that. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how, how to go about wording this, but can you tell us, you know, the events and how how everything seemed to happen um, for you? As far as I'm concerned, I became involved in the event uh, the day that she disappeared, that April 1st, because I was working part-time at the gas station over on the corner of Creighton and Fairfield down in that neighborhood and uh, shortly before seeing her news had broken the neighborhood that she had disappeared I mean people were running around trying to find her because I mean she only lived a couple of blocks away and then it was shortly there afterwards that he showed up uh, at the store with her and uh, purchased a candy bar and I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, I uh, I remember everything still extremely vividly to this day. I mean, that's 30 years later. I mean, that's kind of crazy to say, but I really do. Did you notice anything that seemed off or anything like that? Well, yeah. Um, when they came into the store, um, I noticed that she seemed out of sorts a little bit. And that's what that's what caught my eye. I mean, I didn't know either one of them. And it wasn't until, I guess it was two days later, that I had a uh, FBI agent come into the store and ask me if I had happened to see a little girl in a, in a, in a pink snowsuit that had disappeared. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, actually, her and some guy had come into my store and, you know, I'm gave him all the information. His name was uh, Special Agent Angelo Rochuso. He'd come in from the office out of Chicago, and uh, he, came, he came in and sat down and interviewed me at length about it. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty intense. I mean, you know, I was, I was able to give him as much information as I could, and, you know, um, what he was driving and what she was wearing. And then a couple of days later, he came back into the store after they had announced that she'd passed away, and uh, um, I had to identify her. I had, to, I had to identify her through photos, and I'll never forget that. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but I mean, I've got the image emblazoned in my mind of her coming into the store and remember her out of sorts, and then a couple of days later, seeing her in those photos, and just it, it just killed me. Yeah, I mean, it really did because I mean. I felt sorry for the family because, I mean, you know, it, you know, they were just going through so much. And, I mean, to have her pass away like that was just terrible. This has been, I mean, whether people realize it or not, this is a worldwide famous cold case. And it, you know, just, just being local to it and the fact that, you know, DNA testing today is making huge leaps and bounds. Oh, my God, it's incredible. It is. And when they announced that and they arrested him today, 
and he fully admitted and confessed and described everything. Exactly. It, it, it blew my mind. I mean, he knew, you know, he knew it was over, but it's just. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he probably just he had nothing else better to say, but I did it because, I mean, he knew he was caught. Yeah, he did. I mean, when they when they show up at your door and they ask you something like that or something to those sorts, I mean, you pretty much, I'm sure, wouldn't have anything else better to say than to say that you did it, you know? Exactly. I mean, I can't put words in the gentleman's mouth, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm certain that he really knew that he was caught. Caught just red-handed, and I didn't know if you had known this, but um, a couple of months ago, a uh, team who works with DNA evidence had actually come to Fort Wayne specifically for that case. So oh, no, when, I didn't know that. Yeah, when they showed up into Fort Wayne, it was really big news when they got here let alone in the city, but um, within the community that I work in, in the true crime community, when they showed up, it was like, great. Like, this is this is amazing. And it was shortly after the Golden State Killer had been caught out in California. So we right. all, as a community, were like, you know, great. This is, this is awesome. Maybe something will finally, finally come out of this, you know, out of this case. And now that it's solved, it's like, it's just amazing, and I'm so happy for the family that they got um, that they got the closure. Oh my God, yes! When you first heard the news um, this morning or today, I should say, how did that affect you? Because you've you've personally lived with a lot because you've seen the photographs that not very many people have seen. You actually saw the young the young girl, you know, come into you know your your gas station it, it, it was um, um the best way to describe it is pretty intense because, intense because when the gentleman came in i mean he uh he just told me that i had to identify her and uh well they they had just come out from the site so i mean the the images that i've seen were pretty raw and, and I don't want to go into too many details, but I mean, it was, it was, it was a memorable experience. It really was. It stuck in my mind all of these years. And this is something that, you know, I've been carrying around personally, you know, I hate to say this for 30 years. I mean, I apologize. I mean, by all means, this, this is a day for the family, but I mean, this has been something I've been, you know, just holding on to. And, you know, I've made some calls a couple of times or left some emails to people up there at the police department asking about it and uh, reiterating my information as far as what I remembered about it to the local police up in Fort Wayne and and I um, over the years. And when today happened, I mean, and, you know, I found out about it this morning when friends of mine from Fort Wayne were uh, sending me messages over Facebook saying, hey, you need to get on here and you need to look at the news. And I was like, what What are you talking about? And sure enough, I mean, they, you know, it said that he was caught. You know, and I, I'll be quite honest, man. I mean, I, I kind of broke down a little bit, kind of broke down a lot. That's another, that's, a, that's another story, though. I mean, that's up and above. It, it was just very refreshing to find that they finally caught the gentleman. Did it seem at the time when they were investigating it? I mean, you gave a description of him, of the vehicle. 
Yeah, Did the blue you? truck, the, you know, what he looked like, the whole, the whole nine yards. So, so with that description, because there were several people from what I understand, well, not several, I know there were a few and that, that did report that blue truck and a possible description. Was it surprising to you that the case might have gone this long as being unsolved? Um, well, I'm, I, I didn't know with all the information that they had, if, you know, what the outcome of them would be, but I was most certainly hoping that they would definitely catch him. And obviously with the leaps and bounds that they've made through technology, I mean, obviously they were able to do so. I mean, you know, them just having the, still the samples and everything from back in 88, I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, because, you know, with, I, I, I believe that Fort Wayne's police department moved. I mean, I'm, I'm in Texas now, so I don't know, but, uh, you know, I know things get lost in the mix and then just having everything was just incredible the fact that they did keep that and had the foresight to say hey you know what someday technology is going to be around that we're going to catch this person and it it's by all means it's finally um in fact if i'm not mistaken um there were leaps and bounds made out in california where they started keeping dna evidence on uh, federal prisoners, and I know just from watching different television shows over the years that they had gone back and actually were able to solve old cases just based off that information that they had retained from, you know, the mid-70s up through the 80s. And, you know, I mean, obviously these people were already in prison, but they weren't going to get it any time sooner now that they'd found out more information on them. It's very, very true. You know, this might seem a little awkward out of sorts, um, but you are not filtered on this particular show. So if there is a message that you would like to give John Miller, because I've been reading a lot of comments of messages that people (laughs) have sent to him. Personally, been keeping my messages off there. (laughs) Well, if anything, I mean, I I just want to say that uh, you know, obviously you're not listening. I hope somebody takes this voice recording into the jail for you to hear this, but, uh, my name is Tom Benedict and I worked at that Safeway gas station at Creighton or Fairfield. And I bet you'd never see me again. And I hope I'm there the day that you go to trial. That's all I've got to say. Good man. Good man. And hopefully with his confession, the, the trial would be, will be sped along, uh, hopefully concluded within a year. If he makes it that long, to be perfectly, I mean, they're more than likely have him in yeah. protective custody, unfortunately. But um, crimes like this, I'm not, I can't speak for other states, but crimes like this uh, within the prison system are frowned upon. That's- uh, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm in the state of Texas and, you know, things have a general tendency on getting taken care of, so mm-hmm. it's understandable if he doesn't make it. I would understand, and I would, well, I'll, I'll keep my personal feelings out <laughs> as far as what, what I would like to do, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you, man, and this is, you know, obviously this is going to be a case that is very followed very closely and um can't thank you enough for your time man this is extremely short notice i mean this is within- no brother i mean I, I appreciate this definitely i mean um if anything if you don't mind i would just like to say that uh you know i'm glad the family has 
finally some closure on this because I know that they've been through a heck of a lot through all this. That is that is honestly the most important thing. Um, you know, when you lose a child, let alone when it's an unsolved crime, I, I couldn't even imagine. I honestly can't. I, no. I have two young kids, and I, I couldn't imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, I raised mine up, obviously, through the 90s, and, you know, I mean— even even though they don't have kids yet, I mean, I'd still be just as protective as I was with him. I mean, you know, I mean, it, they're everything to you. They're your life. And, I mean, something like this to happen, I mean, would is would just absolutely tear me apart. Agreed. Agreed. And, Thomas, you know, hopefully this was hopefully this was a little bit, you know, therapeutic, man, if anything else, because this – you know, getting it all out. And today was such a great day for the city of Fort Wayne and for the parents and all the family members of April Tinsley and for everybody like involved in this case, no matter what level to um, even local law enforcement, everybody did the right things with collecting the evidence that they did at that point in time. And it paid off. I definitely agree, sir. Thomas, thank you again so much for your time, man. I, I no, can't thank, thank you very much. much. It's been my pleasure. I I greatly appreciate your time. No, no, it's uh, the pleasure's all over here, man. And um, I would love to keep in contact with you. And um, I'm, oh, I'm by sure all means, you have my number. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm going to be following the case, man. And you know, I'll be more than happy to keep you updated with it because this is going to be you know, big news around the area. And I'm sure you get the news down there because you're still connected with uh, people in Fort Wayne. This is definitely going to be amazing. I mean, I hate, (laughs) you know, there's no other word to say it. Oh yeah, Um, definitely. But Thomas, thank you again. I hope you have a fabulous night. And I hope you do too, sir. You know, justice is served, man. Justice is served. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you very much, sir. You have a good evening. Thank you. You have a good evening as well. You guys just heard the interview. As you can tell, Thomas, this affected him every day. I mean, still today. When I was doing the interview, I mean, we had been able to, we were texting privately back and forth before and after the interview. And, I mean, we share the same opinions on this case, and we share the same opinions on John Miller. You can tell just in his voice you know, not not to put him out there too much, basically. But, you know, he told me afterward, you know, we were texting back and forth. And he's like, man, he's like, I, I about I about broke, you know, I about broke down there, man. I'm like, dude, you have every reason to be extremely sad and, and very happy. And at the same time, in the interview, you can hear him say, you know, he talks about how guilty he feels because he could have done something. But he didn't well, know. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and nobody can look back and think, "How could this guy not have stopped this?" Exactly. It's- and he unfortunately saw the crime scene photos, and I mean, he says, "You know, he's like, dude, those the, those images have been burned into my brain forever." I thought that was a very powerful statement. But then he goes on, and you can tell what kind of guy he is because he straight up says. This isn't about me. He's like, this is about the family right now getting closure. Mm-hmm. That speaks to the type of person that Thomas is personally. And and Thomas, if you are listening, which I'm going to send him a link when this episode is out, you know, I hope you appreciated the episode. And I can't thank you enough for doing this interview. Because like I said, we did this interview literally 
six fucking hours after the news broke, like yeah. on that Sunday. Well, and, and I, I found was, him by accident. Basically, I was yeah, reading through the comments yeah. in our local newspaper, our, our no, local online newspaper, and he went on there yeah, and he we said, were, "I regret this every day." You can just feel the sadness from him. And I think it's, you're right. It does speak volumes. I think the thing that stands out to me the most is how he said, and I don't remember if it's in that interview or if it was a personal conversation that he and I had, but he just said, I'll never forget the little girl in the pink jacket. And for people who are all around the world, you may not have seen a picture of this little girl, but she's just this little like scruffy tomboy. She is so cute. Oh my God. So innocent. Just adorable little girl, <laughs> man. Just a little mis- the dirt with her. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. A little mischievous f- smile, you know, a little blonde hair, just cute as a button, man. Just cute yeah. as a button. And I mean, whether it was her or somebody else, I mean, she's just absolutely adorable. And she was just, just the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And you know, this girl, I don't believe she was targeted. I think this guy knew what he wanted and waited until he found it. Yeah. It was a crime of opportunity for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was just, and, and Thomas, I can't thank him enough for, for letting me interview him. So, so quick after it happened, you can tell it really affected him. Um, When the news did break, he found out as soon as it happened because, you know, he's he's still in contact with people and stuff. Like he had mentioned, you know, he grew up in that area and he's straight up said, like he said in the interview, you know, he's like, dude, this changed our community overnight. He's like, yeah, people the- moved out of the neighborhood. People wouldn't let their kids outside. People wouldn't let their kids ride their bikes down the street. Yeah. And I'm still that way. It's terrible to feel like you have to do that. But um, if you don't mind, I want to touch on what she presented or how she looked when she was brought in to buy a candy bar. So yeah, yeah of, for sure. And if you, yeah, cause if you notice, um, if you notice in the interview, Thomas does say she appeared to have, you know, been like she was on something. Um, yeah. so if you want to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So he said that she appeared to have been drugged, and um, obviously, we're not privy to the autopsy. I think if we would have done this before uh, her killer was found, we may have gotten a little more information. But again, it's just a timing thing. And frankly, I'll take the blessing of finding this fuck over knowing something. Oh, for but, sure. Um, she appeared to have been subdued. She appeared to have been drugged. And I asked my friend in the police department if she was, in fact, drugged. And of course, this was after the, the the news had broken. And all he was really able to tell me was that testing for drugs is standard operations. It's something that they always test for in an autopsy and especially in a case like this. So I'm going to be really interested when the case comes out to see if she was really drugged. So here's the picture that I paint is that this this little girl probably couldn't have articulated what was going on with her, even if the guy would have asked. You know, she she kind of appeared zombie-like, unable to really say what was happening to her. And she was probably also just stunned as to what was happening. So this guy buys her a candy bar and then does all these horrific things to her. And um, it's just amazing. But I think that we'll probably, as the case comes out, you know, and I know you and I will be paying really close attention to it, but I just have the feeling that it's going to come out that she was in fact drugged. It's just so sad to me that this poor girl, she went through just a living hell 
And I look at my yeah, little boy and sure. think, you're never going to leave my sight, kid. <laughs> yeah, I have. Among other things. I'm, I mean, I'm my older boy is a total hermit, so I'm, you know, <laughs> unless somebody <laughs> actually <laughs> comes up, then I don't have to worry about him ever leaving the house. As long as there's Wi-Fi, he's usually pretty damn good. So, See, we just moved into a house in Fort Wayne, kind of in the heart of Fort Wayne. And all my son wants to do is go play with the neighborhood kids. And especially as we've been reviewing this case, I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> Not allowed to have friends. Don't ever leave. Can I house. put a bell on you? <laughs> yeah. And I guess, um, you know, a little bit of background on John Miller. You know, he yeah. was raised around Waterloo. He did go to DeKalb County. Um, classmates and his brother both de- both described him as you know, being slow. Uh, you can tell yeah. from the notes that he wrote, uh, you can go online and his brother actually said, um, in an interview, I don't, I don't know if you saw this on the local news or not. His brother straight up said, he's like, as soon as I found out my brother confessed, yeah. he's like, he was dead to me. He also went on to say that he wishes he would have made the connection sooner because when they flashed the notes that were, right found on the bikes and on the barn that it clicked in his head. He's like, that's my brother's handwriting. And he is in the same situation to where, you know, he's like, I can't believe I didn't connect the dots sooner. You know, he's like, you know, just in a state of, of regret for, for not having the foresight to do anything sooner. It's a really touchy case, but I mean, everybody described him pretty much the same, said he never had a girlfriend in school. They they do remember him, and there is a yearbook photo of him as a freshman, but nobody can actually remember him graduating from high school. They're pretty sure he ended up dropping out. Wow. And like well, I said, he had, he had worked in the location and working you know, for the last dozen years at the, at the Walmart there in Kinderville. And like I said, that's, that's technically my hometown. That's where I grew up. That's where I was raised for the most part. And it's crazy that it's, that it's that close. Yeah. You talk about true crime all the time, but you know, it's usually somewhere across the country or across the world. And for it to be in your backyard, it it takes it to a whole new level. But one of the things I found interesting. Like me and you were talking earlier, you know, my, my buddy lives, I live actually 15 minutes from Grable right now. Um, yeah. I live on the north end of the city. Literally, it's a straight straight road right mm-hmm. to Grable. And um, I got a buddy who lives right on the line of Grable. And his oldest daughter, who's nine right now, she plays softball at the softball diamonds uh, right behind where John Miller was living at that trailer park. And he straight up told me, he's like, dude, he's like, I saw that trailer once a week. John Miller would walk over to the softball diamonds and watch (laughs) all the kids play softball and shit all the time. And then you have. That's why we love our concealed carry. (laughs) (laughs) You're damn right, man. Damn right. One of the things that I found interesting was um, his coworkers and people who knew him from the Walmart in Kendallville described him as having outbursts, you know, occasionally going from silent to yelling and screaming at customers and also having wet himself at work more than once. And he would continue working until this, until management sent him home. So, I mean, this guy has some real clear mental issues, but again, what you had said before is that it seems like he entered a not guilty plea. And I'm sure you want to get to that, but 
It's yeah. almost like, as you said, he wants the death penalty. I'll be honest with you. That's that's a little bit debatable because I did learn that the that the prosecution put that plea in for him in order to, you know, that's the initial plea because the dude's hundred percent fucking guilty. He literally within an hour confessed and described every fucking thing that he did. Well, not but to mention same, that little thing called the DNA. Time, though, for God's sake. Yeah, you can't you can't fucking deny DNA evidence, man. You know, and yeah, we're past that point. It's great because in the audio clips, you know, you heard one of the local residents in Fort Wayne straight up say, I hope he gets the death penalty and I hope they let April's mom flip the switch. Yeah. You know, for people outside of this country, and, and I know a lot of you are very whatever about the death penalty. Let me tell you something about Indiana, okay? Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't give a shit if you're for it or against it. I could give a fuck less, okay? But... Yep. The deal is, dude is 100% caught by DNA evidence. He confessed fully and described all of his crimes. And even in one of his yeah. later notes, described the miss missing shoe. He fucking told the cops, you know, in one of the notes uh, to the little girls um, later on in 2004, he even says, mm -hmm. you know, did you ever find the missing shoe? Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah, this, and, this and, fuck and, was taunting people with laughter years afterwards. He needs yeah. to be treated like Dahmer and just, you know, railed with a broom until he dies. I don't yeah. give a shit. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you, you know. I, I get criticism left and right. I, I don't even care during this episode because, like, like me and you have stated several times, this one is close to home. Like, we've lived this case since we were eight years old and seven years old. Yeah. And if Janet Tinsley, April's mom, would let me, and I could save the state of Indiana a shitload of time and tax dollars. I don't even need a gun. Like, just put no, me in a hands are fine. Room. Put me in a closed room, a locked room with this dude for two fucking minutes. No windows, no cameras. I will fucking do it myself because yeah. the dude is a hundred fucking percent guilty. He confessed. It's DNA proven hundred percent. So and the way it, it's described uh, in the affidavit and the things that have come out as to what he said, there's no regret. He's lived a fairly normal life for 30 years living with this. Mm -hmm. There's no way that this dude feels enough about it to regret it. And so for that, I say, I hope the worst happens to you. And yeah. God have mercy on your soul, motherfucker. The, you know, the mercy's out the window for me personally. And like, you know, I posted something on Facebook about it, you know, just the fact that it's unnerving that this is where, yeah. you know, my kids go. I don't give a fuck if you work third shift or not. Mm -mm. It's in the same vicinity of my children. But it, if you read the comments in that post, a lot of my friends from Kenderville who still live there and have actually interacted with him, you know, said like, dude, he was a fucking asshole yeah. he would go in there and i mean he would you know restock shelves or whatever in the electronics he was in the electronics um department he would he was restocking he's gonna get zapped <laughs> yeah let's hope so um currently though you know as this case is going on right now um john miller is looking at 100 years in prison um which obviously indiana is a halftime state you know, even a life sentence in Indiana is only 20 years. Unbelievable. Uh, personally, though, April's mom is seeking the death penalty. 
everybody in Fort Wayne is seeking the death penalty. He'll um, die one way or another. And that's, that's and, not me pretending to be, to be a badass. You, that's, that's a fact. Yeah. That's, that's not even our opinions on it. Um, there is still a moral code among prisoners and um, me and Thomas talked about this a little bit, I think on the record on and off the record, you know, there is still a moral code among prison systems. Uh, mm-hmm. If he does not get found guilty or if he, he will get found guilty. If he does not get sentenced to death, he will not last very long. I would do it myself if I could, you know, I know this girl has haunted all of us for decades. Oh, and, God, and what it, I said to you before we even started taping is I want to knock this out of the park for her because she could have been a friend of ours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she, it could have been one of us. I just want, I, I want her to be at peace. And yeah. you know, she, that picture of her has been in my life, my entire life, basically. And you're, yeah. you know, I, for those of you, who, like I said, I obviously probably 99.9% of you are not local. Um, <laughs> some of the things that have happened in the community afterward, um, they held yeah. a vigil for, for April, the suspect. After he was arrested, they did hold a vigil. Uh, April's favorite colors were pink and purple. So what they did was a lot of the members of the community went down to April's garden, and yeah. they tied a bunch of pink and purple balloons to the trees down there. And they left them all around the stone. Uh, they have a big memorial stone with her name on it. And it says uh, April's garden. And they left them all over. But not only that, her garden is on a corner. And what people in the neighborhood did was they went down there with sidewalk chalk. And they wrote messages. All right. You know, <laughs> all right. What? Pull my shit together here. They went down and they wrote messages on the sidewalk for April. Yeah. And, you know, just, um, you know, April, we finally got him. Your fight is our fight. Just, yeah. Just all these messages going down around each end of the sidewalk. Yeah. And like, that's, that's, that you don't see on you know the world news at night that's the shit that you don't see on investigation discovery yeah and that I don't know she has been in our hearts for basically our entire life and it's not just you and me obviously it's everybody who grew up in that generation the day, the minute that the news broke my Facebook feed was flooded with people saying, Oh my God, this is how this changed my life. This is how I felt for this girl. And you can put yourself in that position either as the victim or as a parent who could not imagine losing a child this way. And this girl deserves every bit of justice. If she had not gotten into that truck that day, she would be, just like us, a dysfunctional adult with kids, <laughs> you know, just living life. And, and we wouldn't, our fabric may not be so ripped, but, but it is. And we stitch it back together as best we can. Exactly. Very well said. So on that note is, um, 
you have any final thoughts on this case? You know, I'm just so relieved and still so torn apart that this is even something that we have to talk about. And to know that we have so many ties to this case and so many touches with the monster who did it, it just has heightened my awareness of of how I proceed with life and with my child. And it makes me so gut-wrenchingly sad that, that that's how I feel. But, you know, you look at the facts of this case and you think there's a really good reason. This girl literally went back to get an umbrella and this is what happened to her. And it's just impossible to imagine. It is. And I'm still over here uh, trying to pull my shit together. But, uh, um, no, I think it's okay. <laughs> but no, Let it's, it fall apart. <laughs> I'm the bad guy in podcasting. I'm not, I'm not allowed to cry uh, while recording. So that's Liar. how that goes. <laughs> but like I said, man, it, it, for me personally, like my final thoughts, I just can't stress enough. Like, the way the community reacted when this case got solved yeah. was I think one of the one of the like more special things about it. You know, yeah. to see Janet Tinsley after all these years, because if you know as well as I do, on the anniversary, every year, every five years, she's she was out there just pleading with the public. You know, Never, all the, the parents don't give up. She was on the news pleading, if you know anything, if you have any information, please come forward. And to see her in the news reports smiling, yeah, you know, because it's a long time coming, you know, and the family members. And like I said, that community in general, it's a real special thing to see. And that's that's not what you see on the world news. You know, all you see is... Yeah. You know, the talk about the DNA, which which is a great thing. It's it's done leaps and bounds for unsolved cases. You know, you you see John Miller's face fucking everywhere. That stupid fucking face that I love to bash the fuck in. <laughs> but what you don't yeah. see is all those messages on the sidewalk, you I know, love. at April's Garden. And all the pink and purple balloons that the entire community came and put up everywhere. And... As me and you being from here, it's just a special thing to be a part of, and I'm glad that it got solved. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad I I'm glad I slacked on my fucking cases <laughs> and made it <laughs> made it to where this uh, was solved yeah. by the time we, we went to cover it. <laughs> it's just amazing to me because you and I started talking about this literally the week before Good Friday. And yeah. on Good Friday, which is the day that she disappeared, we started working on this. And I remember distinctly you and I talking about how wouldn't it be great if we could help crack this case? Because our passion for it and, and to see this little girl, it's just huge. And to have it wrap up that way, I just couldn't have asked for anything better. I agree. I agree completely. And obviously all you listeners out there, you know, every, every week or two, you know, why don't you get on YouTube, get on YouTube and search, you know, you know, just put in a type search for April Tinsley um, community and you'll see yeah. what the community of Fort Wayne is really all about. 
And when it comes to this case, it's a really cool thing. It's a really special thing to see. That's about all I have to say about it, Jesse. How about you? Yeah, I'm just so thankful. And I'm glad that it worked out the way it did. And I'm glad that um, that fucker is going to die one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? It's not really even about him. It's about April and her legacy. And she left a real legacy for us. Oh, she did. And I'm extremely happy that her family has closure. Um, that's dealing with unsolved cases. I have 80 episodes or so. And I just, I've never done a solved case uh, when it comes to true crime, really. And, yeah. you know, it's a little what bit. What is the reason for it? <laughs> it's a little bit awkward for me, you know. Um, I like to report, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, uh, you know, I like resolutions. I like hearing an ending. But at the same time, you know, for me personally doing unsolved cases, it's about trying to find that ending and trying to right, help. Shed that light. Trying to help, you know, in any way that I can. And it's a little little different for me. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm glad that it, it did turn out this way. And I know I've said that like a hundred fucking times. But after almost breaking down like crying and shit like i gotta (laughs) (laughs) i gotta revamp myself here yeah the amazing thing about it though is it's been 30 years and people you're not the only one who's that emotional everybody is oh yeah like i said if you if you go into youtube and type in april tinsley community it's it's amazing like like i said the greatest thing in the world is seeing janet tinsley April's mom with that smile on her face after 30 years for some kind of living that hell. Yeah. I can imagine to be honest with you. I don't want to imagine. No, God, no. For fuck's sake. I couldn't. Nope. But on that note, I suppose Jesse, thank you very much um, for joining me on this episode. You are welcome back anytime. We are never fucking doing a kid's case again. No, Uh, never. Please. No, (laughs) We Let's will do some crop circles or some shit. <laughs> we will definitely cover some other kind of unsolved case that you may, might be obsessed with, but you are <laughs> you are welcome back anytime. Just let me know. Obviously, give me a few months to uh, clear out some episodes, and we'll be good to go. So I'll wait patiently in line. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, co-hosting jobs are are pretty plentiful these days. I got I got a lot of <laughs> lined up once. I've I've always been very open to letting listeners co-host episodes so they can um mm-hmm. you know experience experience this and I I've invited every single one of them back because they have all done a phenomenal job and and you are included in that so thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. We'll see uh, you on I, the flip side. Yeah, goddamn right. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let you end it. I'm not even going to say it cuz you just did it for me. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Together. (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, it's so difficult though. But all right. And oh, and before we go, I do got to give another very special thank you to Thomas. Thomas, thank you so much, man, for for allowing me to uh, interview you so soon after the news broke of this case being solved. Um, I got to tell you that the receptiveness of that was just amazing. And the way that we got that lined up was just phenomenal. And I think it does a real service um, to April's memory. And I hope it goes a long way to helping Thomas just be okay. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And that, you know what, I think, I think it does in a way. And, you know, I asked him, 
And literally the answer that he gave me was, it's not about me. It's about closure for the families. And I, I was like, you know what? You're, you're an amazing guy for, Absolutely. for even saying that, you know? And like I said, I can't thank him enough. And, and literally, I mean, at like nine o'clock or is like eight or eight thirty at night after yeah. the I saw literally just four or five, six hours. He he was I texted him, I said, you know, would you be willing to do an interview? And he's like, Yeah, let me know when. I texted him back two minutes later. I'm like, How about in fifteen minutes? And he's like <laughs> He straight okay. up, he texts me back. He's like, I'm ready when you are, man. Just give me a call. He's been waiting like, to really right. tell that story for 30 years. You know, he was ready. Yeah. On that note again, why don't you go ahead and uh, <laughs> say what I always say. Hey, we'll see you on the flip side. All right. Uh, I'll <laughs> talk to you later, Jesse. Take care. All right. Night, All Justin. Right. Bye. Bye.